G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan, as we head towards the end of the year. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure everyone out there would probably feel pretty similar, but I just feel like the year has just screamed by. So in some ways, pretty strange to be at the end of the year and maybe in some ways a symptom of being at the end of the year that we've slightly mucked up our order of releasing the podcast. So most people will be listening to this maybe a, a week after what they usually would be listening to the podcast in terms of our fortnightly release schedule. But we thought we'd make up with it with two podcasts this week. So Dad, I know many people will be listening to this on maybe a Monday or a Tuesday, but we'll have another podcast coming out next Friday as well. So a little bit more of a Christmas-related podcast as we finish off the year. And then we've just sat down and had a bit of a a plan for January as well. So we'll be roaring right back into things from about the 8th of January next year with a couple of good meaty topics that will set us up well for the year, Dad. Yes, I'm really looking forward to what we've got planned for the new year. But in the meantime, well, look, that was actually me that we slipped up a bit on the schedule, uh, had a holiday, came back, had the flu put it off for an extra week than we normally would. So that's where we've been very good at being fortnightly all the way through from when we started about four years ago. But um, yeah, but this was a time it was three weeks apart rather than the two. That was up to me, that one. Well, I'm glad you put your hand up because I didn't want to say it, but uh, I was here ready. I was just waiting with two microphones set up and there was no one here to chat to. Yeah, so. it wasn't just that you were slow with your editing <laughs> or anything like that. We can let people know it's not like you who slipped up. Exactly. Well, Dad, let's get on to today's episode. So, We've called today's episode Bolstering Wellbeing, Three Tips from Top Psychologists. So, Dad, I suppose not only what are we going to be talking about today, but but where did the idea for today's episode come from? Who are these top psychologists? Okay, well, where this came up, it actually related to a theme that we covered a few episodes earlier, which we called Your Active Approach to Mental Health. And the whole idea of that is that when we're looking at bolstering our well-being, then it really helps to have our own recipe, our own active approach to mental health, the emphasis on the word active, because if people are just trying to passively follow someone else's approach or recipe or prescription, it's not the same as knowing in a way what makes us tick, what actually moves us. So when we were anticipating covering that topic, I thought, well, wait a minute, I'll ask a few friends of mine who are psychologists that I meet with regularly for group supervision. Well, when I say regularly, about every couple of months, we meet in Melbourne. And so it's just wonderful to have these friends who I've known for decades. As I say, we meet fortnightly, have met for 20 years now. And one of the delightful things about meeting with these three friends also very experienced psychologists, is between us we have about 150 years of experience as psychologists. And I thought, well, what would people say? You know, very experienced psychologists, they've learned all sorts of things from research, they've learned from lots of clients, their own personal experience. I thought, what would their actual recipe be for bolstering their well-being? What's one thing that would come to their mind in terms of a way of enhancing your mental health and I was really interested in the answers that they gave which I thought were quite individual and quite diverse and I think many people will relate to these things in their everyday life but I thought it's a nice example of people stopping and reflecting on 
what really moves me? That's the starting point of this. Well, I think it's, it's such a, a great thing to be looking into in some ways because although I thought you know, it, was a, it was a good episode in terms of that active approach to mental health, there was a lot in there that would be helpful. But like, I even find with my own personal life, for example, when people get into this stuff and it's a little bit prescriptive and it's all similar in terms of diet, sleep, exercise, things like that, like I just find my eyes glaze over a little bit and you know, there's not a whole lot of kind of meat or interest in it in the same way that maybe some other aspects of psychology would interest me. And so I thought the things that, uh, that, that your friends mentioned were, well, they were quite novel in terms of maybe hadn't quite heard of how they'd fit into a particular recipe for mental health before. But as we've had a bit of a chat about this sort of stuff, it just makes absolutely perfect sense. And I think they are things that, that we could all do with a little bit more of in some ways. So let's get straight into them. Uh, the three things, Dad, are play, belonging and volunteering so maybe we start with play dad I know we have this notion maybe with children around how play can you know be beneficial and can help their development in all these different ways but it's maybe not something that we hear as commonly with adults so how can play be something that bolsters our well-being Okay, and look, I'll just mention this is actually coming up as a as a topic which people are more interested in. You start to hear about this more in the positive psychology field, including someone I've known from positive psychology conferences, Elaine O'Brien. She's done a lot of wonderful work on physical exercise, that side of things, but I know that she's talking more about play now as one example. And Earlier on, uh, there was a wellness workbook, which I found very helpful for understanding about health and mental health generally, and they had a section on play that we might even come back to later on. But, um, but the way that my friend described it, I thought this was a really interesting principle to consider play as an adult. He defined play as doing something that you are prepared to forego other things to do, in other words, you're prepared to sacrifice other activities or time or whatever to do it, and that was worth doing for its own sake. So basically, it's something that's really worthwhile to do. You're not doing it for some kind of extrinsic reward, like you know being paid to do it or something like that. It's worth doing for its own sake. Now, that casts the net fairly broadly, but starting off with that notion, that's where we then had a discussion reflecting on, well, what can play include? Well, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that in terms of what play can include. But I think it is interesting to, to look at it in this context because obviously, like, as I say, we, we hear about, say, play in children and, and their development all the time. Like some of the you know, regular benefits of play that you hear for kids are things like, well, it's opportunity to work in groups. They can negotiate with each other. There might be conflicts that come up that they can resolve. They have to advocate their own point of view. They might get physically active in certain ways. It builds confidence and resilience. Like these are things that oh, I guess when I first read that list, I thought, yeah, like maybe for children – but then I think once we get into almost the meat and potatoes of what, what play actually is, you realise that, hold on, there maybe is some application for these benefits in adults as well. And I suppose one way that I maybe noticed this in recent times, and I know I've brought it up, oh, I think a few times now on the podcast, but this children's show Bluey that 
I've got a few friends who've had kids in the last few years and one of the things that they've come across that I've since gotten into as, you know, a single dude with no kids is this kids' TV show, Bluey. And one of the key elements in this TV show is play and how the parents play with their children. But nearly everyone who I know who's watched this show, you know, it's a little seven-minute kids' cartoon, goes, hold on, there's something actually quite profound in here in terms of maybe the benefits of play or almost reconnecting with that I suppose, part of yourself that is a little bit more free and imaginative. So I think there is maybe a recognition from, or certainly those few people that I spoke to, that we've maybe gone a little bit away from this idea of play as adults in some ways. So maybe what are are some of the ways that play comes up in a modern context for adults? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the creator of Bluey because the fact that he's had that role shows that he's embodying at least a couple of the main different types of play in adult life. And one is being creative. Anything that we do creatively, like writing or coming up with some kind of artwork or craft, uh, that's a form of creativity, that's a form of play. Again, it's something that we would spend time doing that rather than doing other things, and it's something that's worth doing for its own sake. But also, well, a creator of Bluey is a storyteller, and that's another kind of play. It's got a creativity in itself, but even if we're telling stories of things that have happened that are quite factual, maybe with humour or something like that, that's a playful thing. When you get together with friends, a lot of what's actually going to be happening is you're going to be telling each other stories. So it's a form of play. Now, funnily enough, one of the ways I think of those as being types of play is, well, we had a visitor at home in the last week and they were reading a book called Play, which intrigued me because we'd already talked of doing this podcast. And it was a book on play written, I think, about 2010 by Stuart Brown and Christopher Vaughan. And they listed eight different types of play for adults. And these things are actually very good in terms of our brain development and neuroplasticity and all the rest of it. But it included the storyteller and an artist or creator. But these are the other types of play they listed. The joker. The kinesthete. That's someone who really likes moving. It could be jazz ballet or, I suppose, some kind of exercise or sporting activity, really enjoying their body moving. The explorer. And that can include people interested in novel ideas. It doesn't actually have to mean physical locations exploring, but it includes that as well. Uh, A competitor. Dare I say, I think you might have elements of that. I know that I've (laughs) had elements of that strongly in the past as well, but um, I know that's one of the things that you enjoy about sport, for example, appreciating the competition of it, whether you're participating or, uh, or watching or whatever. Then there's also the director. So in other words, organising people in different ways. Like in many social groups, there'll be an organiser. Interesting to think of that as actually a kind of play, potentially. And then there might be a collector. Now, people also, they might collect things. For example, they might collect sporting memorabilia or something like that. But also, people can collect stories. Well, actually, our synchronicity group, the Coincidence Project... One thing we love doing is collecting stories about different types of synchronicity. That's a kind of play as well. But I think that's not a bad kind of range to look at. The joker, the kinesthete, the explorer, competitor, director, collector, 
the artist creator or the storyteller. Interesting way of dividing it up, but again, each of these things. We're prepared to devote time to them and they're worth doing for their own sake. Well, for sure. And the interesting thing that I find about that list is it really came to mind, is particularly as you're describing that then, that, for example, I think in Australia and in Australian society, there's a lot of elements of play in terms of, like, obviously sport is huge in Australia and, like, participation sport, that's one thing. And I think maybe even following a sport is an element of play in, in some ways. Like, as you say, there's sort of an element of competition you get into and all this sort of stuff. But particularly, say, things like the joker and the competitor – like, as you mentioned there, like, I'll probably do maybe relate to the competitor in some ways, and particularly with some friends. Like, I realise that when we get together, we just, you know, excuse my French here, but we, we just talk shit. Yeah. And a lot of the time, you sort of, you might even start an argument with someone where you don't even really believe, you know, what you're saying. You just know that it's contradicting what the other person says, and you know that they're up for a bit of a sort of fun discussion. You know, it's a bit of a sport in some ways. Could there be a bit of the competitor in that? Well, I think that's the thing in yeah. terms of, like, yeah, like, uh. there's there's particular relationships yeah. that I have anyway where it's almost like you trust those people enough to be able to bring things up in a certain way that's a little bit sort of provocative and it's just good fun. Be fun. You know, yeah, yeah, 100%. Like it, it never really gets sinister or it certainly yeah. has a very different energy and feeling to it if there's a bit more of a sinister kind of argument to it. But at the same time, even you know, arguing about things like sports teams and all this sort of stuff, like there's an element of kind of poking and prodding and you know trying to get someone to bite back at you and then it's like, oh, we're on it. You know, it's yeah. a good fun conversation that we're having and I think you know in Australia there is a lot of that type of conversation a lot of that type of you know whether it be called banter or you know as a excuse the French again but you know shooting the shit like chin wagon like these sorts of things you know really have an element of well, certainly being playful and it was interesting you know the other day I, I sort of hesitate to admit this in a, a public setting dad but I was actually stuck down a bit of a TikTok rabbit hole the other day and one of the topics that came up was uh what, say, Americans or, say, British people or people from all over the world, what they think about Australia, and particularly, say, Americans, because they're almost, you know, they're, they're so kind of articulate with what they're feeling in a particular way where they go, oh, you know, Australians are this and that and, you know, this is different and that's different. And one of the things that, that someone said was basically that they joke all the time and that you bring up a joke to an Australian person, it's almost like they take it to the next level and then take it five levels beyond that. And suddenly, you know, you're talking about something that has no real relevance to the first thing that was brought up, but you're almost just abstracting things in this particular playful way. And I actually think that we have quite a bit of that built into, well, almost relationships and communication in Australia. And I wouldn't necessarily have associated that with play before, but as you describe those different types of play there like I think oh absolutely like I have a lot of friends with for example it's just a really good fun time as long as if we're having really serious discussions all the time you can just you know as I say just just chat shit a little bit look that's certainly something that comes up with well I've got a group of friends very close group of friends a movie group we've been meeting for 10 years we met each month and it's just a wonderful group but there's a whole lot of that that happens like the banter and the stirring each other is a big part of it. But also in terms of the Joker side of things as well, we'd be watching a movie and one of the hilarious things is the little comments that come up, especially from a few people as the movie's on. It just sort of is all part of it. But also, yeah, that sort of bit of ribbing and stirring of each other, we all love it in different ways. And um, and in the long run, it's all in good fun. Well, absolutely. And but. 
it is in good fun and I'll, I'll completely agree with you about that but at the same time like if we go back to say these benefits for kids that we spoke about earlier like opportunity to say negotiate like resolve like tiny little conflicts like you have to sort of self-advocate a little bit like there's an element of say building confidence and and resilience because you're you're dealing with maybe a little sort of comment that's clipped you over the ear here or there and things like that so I think actually if we really kind of dig down into it like maybe these benefits extend beyond just the early childhood area in which they're probably most commonly spoken about. Absolutely and let's say bring it back to a psychotherapy context like a mental health context One of the things that struck me for many years is that a whole lot of the experience of therapy for the person as well as the therapist is about storytelling. Actually, that's probably the thing I love the most about therapy. Everybody's circumstances are different and a lot of it is about people telling their story and a lot of therapy is about listening to people in such a way that they tell a fuller and deeper and, dare I say, a more optimistic story. But one of the ways that that happens as a therapist is you can draw on the stories of many other people that you've seen. So you can draw on that kind of experience. And a lot of what you're doing as a therapist is also at times telling stories about experiences that other people have had that the person, the client might relate to. And also, of course, a lot of these stories can have a somewhat uplifting quality, but many of the stories are about going through dark times. Actually, many of the stories that we tell as therapists are about different versions of the hero's journey. But part of it is about the stage being the dark night of the soul, but then some of how people resolved what seemed like impossible circumstances. So there's that whole storytelling aspect, and funny enough, reflecting on this as well, When I get together with my three friends, largely what we're doing is telling stories. We're telling stories about experiences that we've had in our work, like one of us runs a lot of groups, group programs, and educating professionals and others. Uh, Someone would work a lot in psychotherapy with adolescents, uh, with myself as well. Partly it's about seeing individual clients mainly, but also just even aspects of writing or even us doing this podcast, being able to talk about that. That's partly storytelling when we catch up about different ideas we're interested in or certainly the work that I've done or interest I have in synchronicity. That's all about storytelling in many ways. And another aside, not just on the storytelling but the play idea, when I think of the psychologists that I most respect and that I really enjoy their company, and I learn something from every conversation we have. They're psychologists who tend to spend time in their own time doing things which relate to psychology, but it's got a play aspect to it. For example, one of my friends writes a newsletter. They don't have to write a newsletter. They enjoy writing and picking up different, even quirky topics. And so that's a form of play. Another friend, he does also creative writing in different ways. He's also done some artwork, drawing or painting, that kind of thing. And another friend would have spent a lot of time in research and also writing articles and things like that that wouldn't need to do, but they're elements of the kind of research and learning and things like that and looking at different ways of training people and all the rest of it 
that have a playful element as well, also organising all that information in a way to impart to other people. So there's a, a creative side to that as well. But one of the things that strikes me is that, yeah, all the people that I learn the most from, they not only have very good training behind them and good experience and they've always connected with peer groups and go to conferences and things like that, but they all have this extra playful element. And I think that they embody this idea or show the idea that the difference between work and play is a little bit blurred. So you can see that they're passionate about their work and they're interested in the standards in their work, the quality of it and all the rest of it. But part of the passion is because actually it's something they do anyway, even if it wasn't just their main job. You can tell they're really engaged in what they're doing for the sake of it. It's worthwhile for the sake of it. Well, it's an interesting thought that you've had there because it suggests that people who are engaged in play at some level, well, that's maybe a an intangible kind of personality benefit that you're picking up on and going, well, you know, as a friend, like that sort of offers me something. So it suggests that there really is benefit in there for, I suppose, pursuing play. And the other thing that strikes me about that is is it seems that within that group of friends, there's multiple kind of unifying factors between each of you. Like obviously you're all, as you say, like play is something that you all value you're all psychologists with a lot of experience and so I wonder if that maybe helps cultivate a sense of belonging which gets us to our second point uh, that, that one of your friends uh, brought up and that is belonging so dad I suppose without necessarily wanting to get a little bit too much like say a year 10 essay competition and then speak about belonging because there's oh, I guess a lot of ways that you could take this what is maybe the belonging that your friend was referring to? Okay, look, I'm actually going to start with something personal there because, yeah, we're just talking about this and the way that you've raised that, it makes me think of how much I appreciate meeting with this group of friends. As I say, we've met for 20 years. Actually, this coming weekend is a time when we're going to go away together for a weekend and we'll maybe do a few hikes and things like that, have a few meals. There'll be lots of stories that we tell and lots of listening to what we've each been doing and just different things that we're interested in. But after one of uh, my friend's suggestions, we call it our end-of-season trip. So that's basically when we've been catching up through the year and we have this time where we typically go away somewhere and stay overnight. And um, sometimes even a couple of nights when one of us was interstate. So we mix it up a bit, but we look to get together each year. And funnily enough, one year I missed our movie club's Christmas party to actually catch up with these friends because it was pre-arranged. It's about the only thing I can imagine skipping our movie club Christmas party for because it's that group that I feel, in a sense, uh, uh, in terms of social belonging, that's such a group of feeling part of it, the movie club getting together each month and all the rest of it. But I think that um, belonging can mean many different things to other people, but it's where you're connected with other people and you feel very comfortable about your place there. You know that you're very welcome there. You'd have a sense of being missed if you weren't there. You have a sense of everyone else that you're connected with in that group is important. If any of them were missing, they'd be missed too. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So it's about, it's about connection but also we can have individual connections where we can be very well connected to someone who might be very much a confidant or a partner or someone who's very important in our lives, family members. 
Oh, actually, family's a place where many of us would feel that that's so important to us to belong and have that feeling of belonging. Sadly, not everyone has that. We see that with people who've been raised in situations of marked neglect or abuse. There are times where people don't feel like they belong in their family of origin, but it's one of the most important areas for many of us. You ask adolescents, for example, who might be in all sorts of conflict with parents at times, and you might think that there'd be these generational conflicts, but if teenagers are asked, what's the most important thing in life for you? They'll tend to say family, first up. So a very fundamental thing, our sense of belonging, I suppose, also belonging to a tribe. You know, there's elements of that in, in all our social groups that we connect with. In the early days, being part of a tribe was necessary for survival. So there's a very primal aspect to that. But I think for many of us, it's where we feel we can be ourselves and be accepted for that. So if people feel they're in a group but not really accepted there wouldn't be that feeling of belonging it's not just spending time with people it's spending time where you feel accepted you can be yourself but you also identify with that group there's some kind of shared interests or reason why you're there and it tends to be these repeated contacts it's over a period of time repeatedly you're turning up other people are turning up there's a kind of familiarity with it often there are rituals around it And when you're there, you feel like in whatever way you feel some sense of being at home and comfortable within yourself. Well, in some ways, I'm a little bit loath to disagree with you here, which I am going to do. But part of that is because, well, so we've heard about the movie club and obviously you've got your psychologist friend. I think you're a bit of an authority on belonging, Dad. I know you've got a few other groups that you're a bit of a part of, but I suppose... It's interesting the way that you describe that there. I probably hadn't necessarily expected you to say it like that because it seemed to me that there's maybe a sense of, of proximity in that belonging that, that you sp- spoke about. And I may have misinterpreted slightly, so I'll, I'll let you uh, reply in a second once I, I contradict you slightly. But there's an experience that I had earlier this year which I hold just so dear to me is, is one of my best weekends of my life really and that was when I was in London and I just so happened to be in London as a mad Newcastle United supporter for the first time in over 20 years that we were in a, a final and and so for this particular final it was played in London at Wembley Stadium and so I think there was about 120,000 Newcastle fans that went down from Newcastle to London Obviously, I just sort of happened to be there at the time. But one of the things I found amazing was being able to walk around, for example, in London, this place that I had, you know, knew a couple of people there, you know, maybe visited once or twice, but had no real connection to. And I could walk around and almost walk up to just about any group of people and just kind of join in the conversation. Like, I've got basically some friends now who I still keep in quite regular contact with who was walking towards Trafalgar Square where there was going to be this big gathering of Newcastle United fans and they were just basically walking down the road singing songs. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go along to the Tesco to the supermarket and I'll get a couple of beers and, you know, it might just help me sort of meet a few people if I've got a beer and say, you know, you want a beer. And so these people just walking down singing, you know, these Newcastle United chants. And I just thought, I'm just going to join in here. And so I just joined in and... Basically, since then, we've got on famously. We spent basically the whole, you know, rest of that day together and uh, we've since formed a, a really good friendship out of it. But it struck me that I could go, well, to that kind of gathering as someone from, you know, completely the other side of the world and I can feel such a part of that, have such almost like positive regard for all of the people there, 
they, you know, seemed to have such positive regard for me. And I think maybe it helped being an Australian who felt that I belonged in that group. I think people maybe were buoyed in their sense of belonging, knowing that this group that they felt a part of included people all the way from Australia. So that was a really big help. But it just really helped me almost contextualise this sense of belonging because although I agree with you, I think there, there does need to be maybe an element of belonging that is in kind of close proximity that we can tap into when we want. There might be that almost social connection aspect to it. But I think in a modern context, there is almost another element of belonging that we can tap into. And I think the person who's perfectly exemplified that is Taylor Swift. I believe she was named Time Person of the Year this year. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a particular Swifty. I, I will put my hand up and say I don't connect maybe with her music as, as much as many other people do. But Taylor Swift is, is fascinating as a case study in the way that she's this absolute megastar and has a way to... I suppose make people feel that they belong, whether it be in her her fans or belong as, I suppose, an appreciator of her music in a particular way. Like I guess it's something that I'm almost finding out a little bit more of as time goes by. And as I say, I probably don't necessarily relate to it on a personal level, but recognise that within this almost you know Taylor Swift movement, I think there is something quite profound there in terms of the connection that she's able to encourage or cultivate with people who are her fans and so I just think although I I agree with you that that all those things that you mentioned are a huge aspect of belonging I do wonder if there's maybe this extra sense in terms of maybe a, a level of identity that we can or identify ourselves in a particular way and almost tap into maybe a group that's that's bigger than ourselves and it's interesting in terms of what you said about how you know you have to feel you know integral to that sort of group to to feel a sense of belonging well you know no one would have cared at all whether or not I was in London for that particular week and in Newcastle but it's almost like the fans as this kind of you know intangible kind of behemoth you know if you are even just one tiny little part of that well that helps to create a connection that can maybe foster a sense of belonging as well. Yeah, really interesting observations. And I'll actually mention another aside there. You mentioned the notion of proximity. Well, it makes me realise that another group that I feel that I belong very strongly with is the Coincidence Project, but nearly all of them are from North America. There'd also be someone from Mexico and London and and other people associated with the project come from all continents, but there's only one person I've met in person, Lisa, Lisa Buxbaum, who's actually been on one of our podcast episodes but there especially about 10 or 11 other people that I feel especially close to because they're also on the board of the coincidence project and we meet every month there's also been a group that's helped organize events that I've met with once a month as well but for me it's actually getting up at two o'clock in the morning or sometimes one o'clock or three o'clock in the morning and it just shows how valuable it is to me, to connect up with these other people from around the world. And a lot of what we do is we we do tell stories but relate to each other's work, encourage each other in our work on synchronicity. But that's a group that I feel that I really belong with, even though they're such a long way away. And probably the first time we'll meet will probably be May or June next year for the first time I've known these people in a couple of years. So it's not just proximity, 
but there's a there's an extra connection from that deep interest that we have. Like I know other people involved in that project, their interest in synchronicity is one of the most profound, important interests that they have in life. I suppose it's a way of tapping into a spiritual dimension in life, which can be fundamental. So that actual alignment, if you like, or that interest is so profound, then it transcends living in different countries and only having come across each other basically through emails and a computer screen. But the feeling of connection is there. But I'm interested in what you say about the Swifties and the fact that there's a name Swifties or, say, Newcastle fans. There's something which I think is quite striking about that sense of belonging, which even though, as you mentioned, in London, you'd only seen these people, it's only the once that you connected up with them, but you felt this belonging. Yes, but there was something repeated about your experience. You'd be watching most Newcastle games. Again, they'd be probably, I don't know, two or three o'clock in the morning, any hours or whatever. And you'd be watching them week in, week out for half the year or whatever it is, year after year. And I bet that you could have talked to any number of those other people and be confident that if you mentioned a certain final and a goal that someone kicked, They'd probably seen that, they'd relate to it, the history of it and all the rest of it. So there's this shared experience that you've kept on coming back to. Or I'm sure the Swifties would think that they could walk up to nearly any fan and they could tell like a full-on fan and mention just about any of 30 songs and be pretty confident that that person also would have heard that song at least probably 20 times and get a lot of personal meaning out of it. And so I think that there's that element that if people are more distant, so to speak, then it's from relating to something else which is profound or means a lot to you and it's still come up in your life in a lot of different ways. You know that overlaps with other people. And, um, and just, just as a final thing, I wonder, though, if there's something different from the belonging of being a fellow, for example, Newcastle supporter or Swifty, where there's this feeling of being a part of a larger group where you feel other people get you and that kind of thing. But I think that there is a slightly different quality of belonging where it's, say, family members where you catch up with relatively regularly, or even if not, you might be overseas, but just the, the history of growing up in a family together with that proximity or the mates you get together with once a month or a footy team you've been part of training two nights a week and then on the weekends and then they have a, a trip overseas or otherwise they might be playing in the same professional team for about 10 years or so. So that's their main life activity when they're in, a, in adult life. I think there's something different also about proximity that mean people are more likely to be, say, a trusted confidant, which can be an element of what strengthens that sense of connection. Well, I guess that is true. I suppose it maybe it speaks to maybe degrees of belonging as well. Like I, I reckon, you know, there'd be a few Newcastle supporters who, although we've got that really good connection, I reckon they'd be a little bit, you know peeved if I rocked up on Christmas <laughs> expecting some turkey so I guess there's there's maybe some degrees to that as well but the other I suppose aspect of belonging relates to a, a Harvard study which is just a fascinating study I believe it's still going and it began in 1938 with a group of 725 men initially including interestingly John F Kennedy 
And then, there, of course, wives and, and families were added later on to greatly increase the number of participants in the study. Basically, these people were photographed, audio taped, videotaped, their blood was drawn, their brains were scanned, their DNA was studied. And basically what they found is that the people who stayed the healthiest and lived the longest were the people who had the strongest connection to others. And the, the warmth of these connections had a direct positive impact on their health and well-being. Good relationships meant participants were less likely to develop heart disease, diabetes or arthritis. And broader social networks and more social activity resulted in later onset and slower rates of cognitive decline. So that's a, a pretty broad study in terms of sample size and longevity, Dad. But it seems to suggest that well, belonging is, is almost something so innate within us that we almost need it to thrive in an even physical capacity in terms of how long we live. Yes, that was a phenomenal study. One of the people involved in that, George Valiant, a psychiatrist was very influential in the positive psychology movement from the early days. Some people referred to him as the godfather of positive psychology. And I should mention as well, there's a wonderful TED Talk on that study. Now, I can't remember the name just at the moment of the person who did that TED Talk, but we'll put a link up for that on this episode link because it's such a profound study in showing how, yes, it even affects how long we live. It affects your immune system. So much is impacted about our physical health as well as our mental health, that sense of close connection with other people. And getting back to that confidant idea, that was one of the specific things that they found in that study. The importance of someone having someone else that they could confide in. Now, that often might be a partner. And actually, in relation to a partner, I think they found that married people lived longer it was actually an average of 5 to 12 years longer for women and 7 to 17 years longer for men. Quite remarkable, that difference. And again, that was partly based on that notion of having a confidant. But for some people, a confidant would be someone other than a partner. But it just shows how important it is to us not just to feel connected, but to feel understood, to feel seen, to feel accepted, appreciated and understood how much difference that makes. Again, dare I say that's something that you notice how important that is in a psychotherapy setting for someone to feel seen, accepted and understood. But many people, fortunately, we have that as part of our lives and if we do, it's really worth appreciating that. Not everyone has that. And if you have that, it's part of what helps us live fuller, healthier lives. There's that phrase that I can't remember exactly where it's come up before and, and in what context, but it really came to mind here in terms of those kinds of people who get it and get you. And if you can find, I suppose, more people in, in who fit that description, then you're going to be a lot better off, both in terms of obviously having a confidence, but also in terms of belonging, I guess, as well. So we go into the, the final of our three tips, Dad, volunteering. So I suppose volunteering is not necessarily something that you hear about spoken a lot in a mental health context. Like obviously we hear about all the benefits of it, maybe in terms of values and, and morality and all this sort of stuff. But how does volunteering come up in, say, a mental health context? Yes, and it was interesting. Like my friend who suggested that as a very important component of mental health, well, no surprise, has done a fair bit of volunteering himself and that includes with the SES and it includes with 
the CFA, Country Fire Authority, and in other kind of ways as well. But one of the things that strikes me about volunteering in terms of hearing of a kind of statistic or a finding, the notion that people who volunteer, if you look at the health benefits that they get, like physical as well as mental health benefits, the volunteer gets, if anything, even slightly more benefit than the person that they're helping. A really interesting kind of notion. Like, what's volunteering for? You might think, well, it's to help people who are less advantaged than ourselves. It's to strengthen our community. It's to serve someone else. It's to do something for someone else. Well, sadly, there are lots of ways that we sometimes act or think in our culture, which is a little bit like a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game means if you benefit, then I miss out. If I gain more, you have less. Like just say if you have one piece of cake and you're dividing it up and if someone gets two-thirds, then the other person's only got one-third and vice versa, there's that zero-sum gain. Or someone wins, it means someone loses kind of thing. It's that more competitive idea of life rather than, dare I say, a collaborative idea. Well, this notion of volunteering and the benefits of it, it shows that When people volunteer, it's not just collaborating, helping someone, they're also doing something for themselves. And when people realise that they're volunteering partly through enlightened self-interest, that can even enhance that impact. And one thing that does strike me about people who volunteer often, they're, apart from being empathic, considerate people, they're also often quite self-aware. And so I think that there is that self-aware, enlightened element where people aren't just trying to make out, oh, I'm wonderful, I'm doing this. They're not just dropping lots of comments about all the things that they do for other people. Every now and then I actually hear someone do that and I think, oh, it just sort of grates a bit. Because a number of people I know who volunteer, the story comes out a bit later down the track. Or you hear from someone else. Or maybe the person tells more of a story of what they're doing and you think, oh, by gosh, I didn't realise that you were you know, spending that much time in it or how important that seemed to be to you to give that time with it. But, yeah, so there's something about volunteering which is selfless, but there's also something about it which is really self-enhancing. Well, that's just a fascinating idea because that's, I suppose, not the context that we often hear about volunteering in. And like, I really wonder why that is in terms of why is it that volunteering almost delivers more benefit for the person volunteering than, than even potentially the person that they're helping. Like that almost seems so unintuitive in a way. And I was thinking about that before we came on today. And it seems to me that there's an element with volunteering where you're expressing your values. Like obviously, you know, maybe benefits of belonging and all this sort of stuff that we spoke about before too. But it's almost like in a, in a way we're externalising our values. We're not just almost, you know, sitting in a room and, say, speaking to someone about, oh, you know, this is the things that I hold dear, this is what I believe, you're actually acting on it. And this idea of, say, acting on your values, it's not something that I suppose we have a really maybe explicit connection to in our society. Like, I I certainly don't want to trivialise this in any way, and, you know, I'm not necessarily a religious person, so I I do apologise if this comes across maybe a little bit simply to someone who's more in the know. But, for example, people in Islam who pray five times a day, like, I believe part of that is almost 
anchoring your values in a meaningful experience, which is this prayer. And I believe that the way that it's structured throughout the day is almost say you get to different parts of the day and you want to, say, reconnect with, say, God in a way, or you want to almost re-anchor the values that you exhibit throughout the rest of the day in this, say, religious ritual. And I believe people who are Catholic, they go through, say, the seven sacraments of Catholicism, including, say, baptism and confirmation, all this sort of stuff. In some way, it seems to me that that's also about, say, anchoring your values. Uh, I'm, I'm probably doing it a bit of a disservice there because I believe they refer to, say, connection to God. But in our context, we can almost refer to it as values. It's almost you're anchoring your values in a meaningful experience. And I wonder if there's a degree to which volunteering does that too. It's not as if you're sort of sitting there going, oh, you know, this is something I really think strongly about and, you know, I'm, I'm, say, watching something on a movie or whatever and having a really emotional reaction. It's like, well, proactively, what are you going to do about that to maybe exhibit the fact that that is something that you hold dear? And I don't think we necessarily have a lot of that in, say, our modern western society but when i look at say religious groups like people who are islamic and people who are catholic almost this participation with their values almost this aspect to which they're going look it's one thing to say hold this set of values but actually i'm going to say in or go through maybe invoke a set of experiences which help me almost anchor those values in in experience in a way and I guess with volunteering, one thing that really came to my mind was that that is something that maybe is a benefit. It's not as if we're just sitting there talking about the things that are near and dear to us. We are actually going out of our way to act upon these things that we hold dear to us. And and so that's what I wonder if it's maybe part of the way that someone really does get such benefit from volunteering. Yes, that notion of acting on values, like you're saying, it reminds me of the notion of service combined with the idea of devotion. So to me, often when people offer service in a certain kind of way, there's also like a spiritual element to it, which for a number of people, it might be through organised religion. As you say with Islam, it might be certain rituals that come around this, but I think that there is that notion of devotion to service in certain kind of ways and maybe looking at things as something larger than oneself is part of it and seeing that as being an important kind of thing. And that's actually a theme that goes back to Plato as well. Plato talked about having certain kind of rituals which are enacting one's kind of values in some ways to get the favour of the gods. And it was about doing things right in a certain way. Funnily enough, there was an expression that he used that sometimes translated into the notion of life should be lived as play that often gets interpreted as, oh, we're meant to be light-hearted and all the rest of it. But there was actually quite a specific meaning that Plato was meaning. And funnily enough, it was actually more to do with certain kinds of service and devotion and going about that in certain ways, even dancing in the right way or rituals being in the right way, again, to partly appease the gods. It was partly this higher-minded way of looking to serve or contribute. But coming back to one other way that that can be enlightened, I think with volunteering, this giving idea, is there was another fact I learnt which I thought was fascinating, which is how volunteering would have health benefits. It's to do with something called 
eudaimonic well-being, which I think Plato also talked about. There's the notion of hedonic well-being and eudaimonic well-being. Or look, it might have been Aristotle who talked about this, but again, the Greek philosophers highlighted the importance of eudaimonic well-being. What does this mean? It means doing something for the benefit of other people. So positive psychology is largely based on that. The idea of doing something meaningful is doing something gratifying, meaning that you like doing it or you're good at it and it appeals to you, but doing it for the benefit of other people. So if you eat an ice cream, that's for pleasure. You feel good, but that's for pleasure and it's gone in five minutes. You do something gratifying it might be something that you're really good at, like it might be a creative kind of act or painting or drawing or whatever, but you do that for your own interest and engagement, that's gratifying. But if you do something for the benefit of other people where you draw on, again, your top strengths, like the Bluey creator, and you're doing that for the benefit of children and a wider culture... And a 30-year-old single dude. <laughs> there you go, and a 30-year-old single dude and lots of other people, that's meaningful. So the idea of doing something meaningful, but okay, so that's eudaimonic well-being. Well, how does that impact on us health-wise? Well, one of the fascinating things is it helps counter the toxic impact of certain situations on inflammation. Now, our body gets an inflammation response when we're under stress of particular types. So inflammation response, it can be really bad for our health. We're more likely to have chronic illnesses and all the rest of it if we have a lot of inflammation over a period of time. But what causes the inflammation response? Trauma, poverty, chronic illness. If someone's in a long-term caring role, there are a number of kind of things which are draining and tend to lead to inflammation. But something counters the inflammation response. If someone's engaging in eudaimonic well-being, so in other words, if someone's a carer but they perceive it as being very meaningful, they're drawing on strengths that they have and they see it as being really meaningful and that service to others, they get satisfaction from that, that enlightened self-interest is almost part of that as well. They know that they feel good doing things for other people. It counters the inflammation response. If people have trauma reactions but they're doing things for the benefit of other people, it can counter it. One of the classic examples, now I forgot whether this organisation, I think they were called Aussie Farmers or Aussie Helpers or something like that. It was on Destination Happiness, the TV wellbeing show years ago. It was about this fellow who was a Vietnam veteran with terrible PTSD, terrible chronic PTSD, but the worst PTSD that his psychologist had seen. And so his therapist said to this guy, look, we've had contact over a long period of time. I'm not really sure how I can help you. All I can think of is to suggest to you that you go out and find people worse off than yourself. And he stopped and he thought, and he, I think, lived in a rural area, and he thought, there's a whole lot of farmers doing it tough. There's been drought, they haven't got enough food for their stock that you know, the crops are failing and all the rest of it and he set up this organization say it was called something like Aussie Farmers or something like that and he went around helping those people and it's how he helped overcome the most negative impacts of chronic PTSD and depression and there's this massively uplifting story of what this fellow did talk about using eudaimonic well-being 
but that's a that's a full on mega you know volunteering kind of role. But many of us might think of different ways that we do things. Just do something for other people. Notice how you feel after that. Doing something for something larger than yourself. Well, we could even call it going beyond the ego or whatever. Most of us get some sense of that. If you're connected to something larger than yourself, if you can draw on your own attributes, like volunteering is about providing some kind of service or thing, so it is giving to someone else. So it's not like uh, the volunteer gets more of you know, what you're giving. The, the person being given to, they get the, you know, the food or the time or the assistance. But in terms of well-being benefits... The, the, the health and well-being benefits, it's the volunteer, if anything gets a little bit more out of it, than the very worthwhile benefits that the receiver gets for their well-being. Well, that's so interesting. And I suppose like what really comes to mind for me there, and, and maybe this goes all the way back to the Greek philosophers, which I believe it does, but there's this maybe strong notion that comes through of participation in terms of, it's, a, it's one thing to hold a set of values and feel as though you know like you're really connected to those values but it's say another thing altogether to whether it be even through say ritual or things like this but to find a way to almost say ground that spirituality in experience and I suppose we're getting you know a little bit deep into the weeds here dad but at the same time like I think there's there's really such benefit to that and like if we look at say Catholicism and Islam like they seem to had those experiences where they ground their connection with the divine in some experience and so like that's that's more than three billion people around the world i believe like surely they're onto something and i'm sure if we looked into many of the other religions and cultures around the world well they'd likely almost have this element of participation with some of the activities that they do as well and and i'm fascinated by that inflammation or or the mitigation of an inflammation response that can come with that because I do wonder if it's something that is so kind of dare I say ubiquitous around the world maybe not so much in our society but it's certainly an intrinsic part of so many other societies well I wonder if we maybe tapped in to some degree subconsciously that well you do get say a physiological benefit from going through something like that and so therefore it's something that we hold to such importance and you know further cultivate that as sort of time goes on but I just find it absolutely fascinating maybe the degree to which so many people and cultures around the world have this say element of participation in their values in a way. Uh, Interesting you mention it that way and the expression that comes to my mind even in a secular way is showing up. The notion of showing up and being present and often when we talk about showing up we might talk about a person taking on a kind of work challenge or it could be some other kind of situation where someone's looking to be productive or whatever but I think often when we use that expression of showing up there is also this notion of doing something for the benefit of other people, the benefit of the group. So there is that participation aspect that you mentioned, but also showing up, if we relate that to the idea of being a volunteer, is if someone's going through real hardship, they've been massively affected by fires, they've been recently diagnosed with a serious illness, they're facing challenge or loss in a particular way, One of the striking things is when friends or other people show up and look to actively help or offer something in some way. It goes beyond saying, oh, look, if there's anything I can do, 
to help let me know which puts the other person in an awkward position for asking. Another way of doing it is to actually contribute in some ways. And we've had benefits of that greatly in our family when we went through challenging situations in the past. There was a time when someone just organised a, a roster of people coming around with food every single night that helped keep our family afloat for a period of time. When you're on the receiving end, you recognise it's not just the benefit that you get in that case from the food, but it's also like the love and the support that comes with it. So there's so much that comes from that. And again, that came from a very enlightened friend who really considers other people and certainly something larger than, than oneself. But we can think of what are the ways that we do contribute to others? What are the ways that we can contribute to others? How does it leave us feeling afterwards when we've done something to benefit other people? And that's actually a lot of the purpose of this episode. We're inviting people to reflect on these things in particular including play, belonging, volunteering. Like, how do we relate to that? But there might be also other things that we think are very important for our well-being. And so, again, we talked about that active approach to your well-being. Yeah, but this is a novel way of looking at it. I was very interested to find out from my friends. We could even do that exercise, if you like, ask some friends or whatever, hey, what, what, what do you think is the most important thing to you for your well-being? Because I was actually intrigued by the suggestions that came up? Well, I think they were, now that we've had a chat about them, I think they were quite brilliant answers in some ways in terms of there was maybe a simplicity to them and a succinctness, but oh, I think they're all quite profound notions that you can really look into as well. So it was nice to, uh, I suppose, get a little insight into what it looks like when 150 years of experience in, in psychology gets around the table and, uh, and and has a bit of a chin wag. It's good to know that there's maybe not uh, more of, say, the banter and, and the talking <laughs> talking shit notion that uh, that maybe myself and my friends would probably get up to, you know, more more often than not that uh, there is that kind of deeper aspect to it. It's uh, been very interesting. But, look, thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. It's, it's been a really good episode. I've enjoyed it. And as I say, we've got another episode coming next Friday, the 22nd of December. You may very well be listening to this after that date, in which case go ahead and, and listen to that one. It's a little bit more Christmas-related in some ways. And we'll be back on the 8th of January next year for our first podcast for the year. We've got basically, I think, January into February and or sort of beyond that really mapped out for next year for a good few meaty topics that we're very much looking forward to getting into. And we will put all the resources for today's episode. I don't know, there's that TED Talk that we'll dig up and, and some other things as well. Put those up at psychspiels.com.au. And, Dad, thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today. I look forward to the next one. Thank you, Rowan. I look forward to that. And from now on, I'll try not to sabotage our schedule. <laughs>